Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. My name is Brad and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of scripture is still speaking to his kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power. Enjoy the message. Let's give him your tears And I remember going through the same thing All that weight on my shoulders try to break me Father, stretch your hand down from heaven, please save me I'm holding to But today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 73 We've spent the last couple of weeks using these poems found in the Bible as guidelines or roadmaps for, for teaching us how to adopt the languages and processes that we need to pray through seasons of struggle. We've explored some different Psalms that, that have explored some really difficult, different and emotional responses to God and to different life situations of struggle, seasons of pain, of suffering, of regret, and of confession. And actually, this Sunday is, is the last Sunday that I'm going to be sharing on, on this topic with you. But I'm really excited because next Sunday, we're going to do something a little different again, something a little special that this time allows us to do. Um, a friend of mine, a pastor, somebody who, who I've, whether he knows it or not, I've used him a lot to speak into my life and into our church. And he's had a hand in forming some things in our church. Uh, a pastor friend named Craig Millar, who pastors a church out in uh, B.C., in uh, I'm not sure which part of BC. Sir, is it Surrey? Okay, they're all the same to me. I don't know the, the lower mainland very well. Um, but in Surrey, called, called Horizon Church. And he's going to, to come and, and share with us to conclude this season. But one of the miraculous things that we've seen as we've walked through these weeks, these poems and these struggles, is that as we read these, these words, these cries of pain, of suffering, and of regret, these words written to God miraculously become God's words to us as we walk through these seasons and we see what it looks like from God to walk through these seasons. In our time together this week, we're going to explore this psalm, this, this prayer where the author expresses a crisis of faith. When he looks at the world, he struggles because he doesn't see a world that he can make sense of through the lens of his faith in God. In fact, it's the opposite. It seems as if the more he looks around and the more he looks at the world around him, it's not just that it becomes difficult to reconcile these two things, it's that it becomes impossible. It becomes impossible for him to look at what he knows to be true about God and what he believes to be true about faith and to look at the world and see those two things meeting together. And so we're going to take a look at this psalm as a template, as a formula for how we can walk through seasons of doubt and discover what it looks like to bring God our doubts and to pray through them and to allow God to take us through to the other side of a season just like this in our lives. And I want to remind you, as we turn to Psalm 73 in our Bibles, I want to remind you that we are reading this in the Bible. 
And I know that sounds a little silly as we're turning in your Bibles to find Psalm 73. But as we move through this, this psalm, and Asaph, that's, that's who writes this psalm. He, he's a priest. He's a, he's a pastor, essentially, in, in Bible times. And he, he's the one who writes this psalm. And he pours out his heart and his doubts to God. It gets a little raw. It gets a little intense. It gets a little confrontational. When we think about, and, and it gets a little odd, when we think about this as the Bible, as God's word, as we read through what he's going to say, and, and we understand that this actually is God's word, it's this amazing miracle that we talked about where a man's words about doubting God become God's words to a doubting man. That this man's words about his doubts about God suddenly become God's words to us when we doubt. And so Psalm 73 begins seemingly normal enough with a statement of faith in God where he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. Sounds good. But then he goes on from here to express how he's not sure he can buy it anymore. And then he begins to pray through this crisis of faith and doubt. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. He begins with the line that every good person is, every good Christian person is supposed to know and say, God is good. And if we were together, and maybe even as you're watching at home, you were tempted, or maybe you even did say, as I said, God is good, you were tempted to say, all the time. And then if I say all the time, you're really wanting to say, God is good. But he stops, and he looks around, and he says, Sorry, I can't do this. But I have to be honest. I'm not in a place where I can say that with honesty anymore. I'm not sure I actually believe that to be true anymore. And he uses a metaphor to describe his current state or his feelings. He, he describes his feet almost slipping, that he's looking for a foothold. And if we stop for a second, and we, we think about this image... This is language and pictures that invoke a very specific picture. You don't say these kind of terms if you were just walking down the street. You don't, you don't somehow say, oh, I lost my footing. Oh, I, I was looking for a foothold in the sidewalk. That's, that's not what you say. You, you would use them when you're on a, a difficult, steep hike, if you were mountain climbing. And so this is the kind of picture that he paints for his spiritual journey. Climbing a mountain or a rock face, it's hard. It takes effort and intentionality. And he says that he comes to this place where he was fighting and he was trying to climb this mountain. He almost slips and loses his foothold and falls. He says he didn't really completely lose it, but he came close. It's this incredible picture of life and faith and doubt where you're doing your best and you're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. You're doing everything right. You're fighting to be right, to do right. And then suddenly something happens or suddenly something doesn't happen. And that place that you had put your foot that you thought was secure, it isn't. And it throws you, it throws you off. And suddenly what you thought was secure and right and good suddenly doesn't seem like that anymore. And what you thought about God and who he was and what he was in your life 
suddenly you're not so sure that it makes sense anymore because this isn't it. This isn't what I thought God was. This isn't what following God was supposed to be. This isn't what I was told would happen. This isn't how I was told that this would go. And suddenly our feet slip and our world looks really different. It's like suddenly you're hanging on the side of a rock or a mountain and you didn't see it coming. It's a deep picture of the suddenness and the power of doubt. And then he goes on from this metaphor to tell us about how this emotional journey that he went on with his doubt, how it begins or where it, where it stems from. He says in verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why did he envy them? What caused his foot to slip and his doubt to explode inside him? The next three words are the key. When I saw. And what does he see? the prosperity of the wicked. The word that, that is used here for prosperity is probably one of the few he Hebrew words that many of us know. It's the word shalom. And it means well-being, abundance, welfare, peace, harmony, wholeness, prosperity. So what he says is he says that he saw, he looked around at the world around him, and he sees the state of the world. And he sees these people in the world experiencing shalom. And these people are doing whatever they want, living awful, abusive lives. Verses 4 through 12 describe these people saying, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? How does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. He says, it's not just that they're getting away with it, but they're actually flourishing. It's not just that they're not getting punished, but it seems like they're being rewarded. It's not just that the negative isn't there, but it seems like the positive is being poured out. They're living the good life. They have shalom for this kind of behavior. And the author says, I see all of this. It's not just an assumption that he makes that this is what they're like. He sees it. He experiences it. He's touched it. He's tasted it. And he says in verse 13, he relates this, this story, this, this place to his own experience. He says, surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishment. He says, I thought God was going to keep, be good to the pure in heart. That's how I started this. And I'm telling you, I have been keeping my heart pure. And now, I don't know if it's even worth it. I'm not convinced it's worth it. I mean, look at what these people have and look at what I have to deal with every day. They get shalom. What do I get? 
I get new affliction and new punishment every single day. I experience life as punishment and plague. But the people who totally neglect God, do whatever they want and even mock God, they get peace and prosperity. This isn't just some abstract concept for, for him. He isn't just reading the newspapers. He clearly has had some personal experience that called into question everything he thought he believed. And he comes to this place where his belief and his faith and his God don't mesh with the experience that he's having in the world where he lives. And, and this is important because sometimes... We think about doubt and moments where we doubt, and we can see doubt as this thing that just simply happens in our heads. That it's more an intellectual exercise that we undertake that just needs to be overcome. That, or, but what we see here is that it's more than just a head thing. It's a head thing, but it's also a heart thing, and it's an experience thing. His doubt is generated not just by thoughts and questions in his head, but what we see here is that it's more than just a head thing. It's a life experience that does not fit into the understanding that he has of the world and his God. And what this means for us is that doubts can come from all sorts of places, all sorts of inspirations. They come from ideas, but they come from relationships, from life circumstances, things that we do and things that are done to us. You can see it like this. He has some sort of experience that's causing his heart to question the reality of what his mind says is true. His mind and what he's been taught to say is that God is good all the time. But through his experiences and what he's seen, he cannot reconcile his head and his experience. He's not sure he can buy this idea that God is good to the pure of heart. And so how does he take his doubt and struggle and do something with it? I think that through this psalm, we see four movements, four things that he does, four places that he goes to to confront his doubt. But really, not just to confront his doubt, but to confront God. And so before we go forward, we need to actually go back because we've read through one of these moments already, one of these movements, because I want to look back at a verse that we already looked at in light of what we said and, and what we talked about last week. We go back to verse 3 when he said, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's almost like, intentionally or not, he has this moment of confession where he brings to God this thought process, this view, this experience that he has with the world and God, and he brings it all to God. And if we look at what he says here, we can get a real insight into what's going on in his heart. Because it's not justice that he's upset about. It's not life or karma or, or anything like that that he's upset about. What's the word that he uses here? How did he feel about the arrogant? It's not the lack of justice. It's not wanting to make things right. He says he envied them. He, he was jealous. In other words, we see here that he has a real personal, raw issue with what's going on, but a big part of the issue is rooted in his character, 
His jealousy is what's motivating this crisis of doubt for him. So when you boil it down, it's not just that he sees that people around him that shouldn't have what they have, but it's that he looks at what other people have, sees what he doesn't have, and he wants what they have. It's a heart and a character issue for him. That the focus of his doubt, the focus of his doubt may be God's character and God's goodness, but he really admits it's not just about God but it's also a question of Asaph's character. It's like he's saying, if I'm really honest about this, when I, when I deconstruct my own doubt, I come to a place where I can see that my own self and my own wants are shaping how I see God in all of this. Now, what this movement looks like, what this step, what this place looks like, is a tough one for us to understand and for me to tell you what this looks like in your life, but it's something like this. We have to somehow do some real heart searching in these seasons of doubt to say, what is my vested interest here? I say that I cannot believe this particular thing about God or the Bible or Jesus or whatever it is, but we need to look and think and, and really be open about, is it possible in any way that there's some other issue here and this is just the smokescreen? We have to deconstruct our own doubt to really expose for us what we're really dealing with in our lives. It may not always look like this. It may not always be a smokescreen of something in our own lives. But if we're able to be totally honest with ourselves and say and uncover the hardest issue or the hardest parts of what we're feeling, it may not, or we may be able to uncover that the thing we thought was the issue isn't really the issue. And the thing that is the issue, it's actually this other thing over here, which is precisely what happens with Asaph here. The issue is God's faithfulness and goodness to Asaph, but the real issue is that he's jealous and envious of what others have that he doesn't. And we're going to see how this dawning realization shapes what comes. Let, let's keep going. We're going to jump all the way back to where we were, to verse 15. And this is kind of the key turning moment in this prayer. Verse 15, he, he, he starts to begin to speak about what his doubts looked like for him. When he says, if I had spoken out like that, remember, Asaph was a priest and a Levite. So he couldn't just give his voice, or he didn't feel like he could just give his voice to this, because if he did, it would have affected a whole generation of Israelites. That, that sometimes, as a pastor or as a priest, it, it can be scary, because if I come up on, on a Sunday morning and I give voice to my doubts, I can be fearful of what that's going to do for you. Verse 16, when I tried to understand this, when I tried to understand the way the world was working, it troubled me deeply. Then verse 17, he begins to talk about what he did. He said, Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He was struggling with this so much, so he went to church. This is essentially what he's saying. Well, well kind of. What he's talking about here as the sanctuary of God is the temple in Jerusalem. And it's always, what you needed to know, what you need to know about the temple for this is that it's always full of people. 
It wasn't just full of sacrifices that we read about. That's what happened there. But when you look at the descriptions, what the descriptions were of what was happening at the temple, there was singing. There was choirs. There were rooms full of people learning and teaching and debating. There's just people there. There's people everywhere. There are hundreds of people all around constantly, day and night. So what he's saying here is in the middle of my doubt, he decided that he needed to immerse himself in a community of faith, of worship, of prayer, and of God's word. And somehow immersing himself in that brings about this turning point in his life. Now, he doesn't identify a specific moment or action or point or what it was that happened. He just highlights that it happened inside of this community. He says, I struggled with this so deeply until I immersed, I immersed myself in a community of faith experience. Remember, your doubts are not just intellectual events. They are life experiences. You, you need to engage. You need to engage with it. You're not just going to think your way out of it. But here Asaph says that for him to move past his life experience that caused him to doubt, that caused him to bring doubt, to have doubt in his relationship with God and how he viewed God, he needed to immerse himself into a different experience, into a community of worship. He looked at his doubts and, and how he felt about God. And instead of retreating from the source of these, instead of retreating from God, he decided to move towards his doubts and to see what would happen as a result. Not to withdraw and live inside his own doubt, but to move towards it. Think about it this way. To grow in relationship with my wife, it's not just enough to think about it. Even if I am thinking about her and dwelling on her day and night. It's not just enough for me to think about her. I need to pursue her. And if for some reason I ever have doubts about my wife and my relationship with her, if we were ever to move forward in, my, in our relationship, it will not just be because I'm thinking about them all the time. Dwelling on them day and night. In fact, that's probably going to make things worse if, if I'm having a bad point in my relationship and all I do is live in that bad point. But if I want to move forward, I need to pursue her. And this is what he's getting at here. Asaph found the path forward in his doubt with God, not by living and dwelling in his doubts, but by actively pursuing and engaging the source of his doubts, God, in the form of this community. Did he go and immerse himself in the scriptures? Did he go and immerse himself in prayer and meditation? Did he go and join one of the choirs? He doesn't say. He doesn't give part of the community credit. He gives this experience in the community credit. If doubts arise from a life experience that throw you off, then what he's saying here is that you need to immerse yourself in a different kind of life experience. I cannot tell you the number of conversations and coffees that I've had with people struggling with God and their faith in God that have allowed their doubts to cause them to leave the church and just live in their doubt. And pretty well, universally, they don't see their situations and their feelings or their doubts reconciled. 
Because instead of pursuing their doubts, pursuing the source of their doubts, pursuing God, they recoil from God. They choose to live inside their doubt and say, I'm going to step away from God and I'm going to try and reconcile my doubt. And then if I get there, I'll come back to God. But this is the opposite of what Asaph is saying to us here. He goes to the temple and it reshapes what he's saying. We need to do the raw work of deconstructing our doubt. And then we need to move towards our doubt. Not hide from it, not live inside of it, but to push into it. And then we see the next thing that happens for Asaph. Verse 18, he says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. He's talking about the wicked here. Now, this is an allusion back to the very beginning of the psalm and his description of the situation, the moment when doubt shattered his world. He says, I almost slipped and I almost lost my footing. But he takes a raw look at himself and his doubt and he deconstructs it. And then he pursues his doubt by immersing himself in his community. And then suddenly... He realizes that even though I see injustice and wrong in the world and I see the wicked prosper, when I compare my foothold to their foothold, I see that really they're way worse off than I am. That all of my faithfulness and devotion to God, they do make a difference in my life and in my eternity. And he starts to see his foothold, and he starts to see other footholds in the world around him. And as he compares the footholds, he starts to see himself, his life, and his place in the world differently. He says, How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakens. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. He sees their foothold and what they offer, and what he allows himself to see is more than just this moment. More than just the moment in time where everything seems off and seems compromised, where everything seems good for them and terrible for him. And he's able to zoom out and take a wider view of things. And it causes him to see the way things are and the way things are not in a totally different way. Then we look at the last thing he does in verse 21. First, he deconstructs his doubt. Second, he pursues his doubt. Third, he compares his footholds. And then the last thing we see in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He's coming now with the benefit of hindsight and he remembers the moment he hit the bottom, where he hits rock bottom. He says he is bitter, he is grieved, he feels like an animal. He cannot make any sense of this life experience anymore. And right as he feels like this, like he is so alone and so lost and without hope, and he viscerally feels God's absence, what does he find there? Right here, right in this moment, as he feels completely lost and alone, verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. Wrestling through this journey of doubt, deconstructing his doubt, realizing that his struggle is with, doubt, de with jealousy, 
and after he's pursued his doubt and he's compared his footholds, he comes to see that the only good thing that he has, that he wants, is the nearness of the God whose commitment to him has been for him this whole time. Even when he was a brute beast wallowing in his doubt, he discovers that God is right there holding on to him. And he realized that that is all he wants in this world. That if he has that, what more could he want? Remember, he began, or we, we began by exploring that he's a jealous person. And the healing that's taken place in his life is that he has now become jealous for the presence of God. He says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. He began this poem by saying, Surely God is good to Israel, which he now realizes that he meant when he said that, that God was supposed to give the benefits and the hookups to his people all of the time. And that isn't what happened. And then he's faced with a doubt that strips away all of his assumptions that he believed about God. But he prays through his doubt. As, as he walks through his doubt, he, he comes to this place where he's able to see himself as just this brute animal before the Creator God. And precisely when he sees or thinks God is absent, that God's presence is right there in his life. And it brings him to this place of dependence and desperation for relationship with God. And suddenly he's overwhelmed with this intimate relational language. It's as if this experience of doubt is actually the best thing that could have ever happened to him. Because it's brought him to this incredible deep place as he's worked through his doubt. And so what does this mean to experience the nearness and the goodness of God when we're feeling left alone and hung out to dry and falling off the cliff? And I think Asaph's journey and what he's showing us in this prayer is that we need to look for God's presence when we feel his absence. And to illustrate this point, I want to go back to something we looked at many weeks ago, back to the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at this story over a couple of weeks at Easter time, but I want to go back there now. Jesus has this moment where the evil and wickedness of men are just about to overwhelm and crush him. And even Jesus says twice to God, God, I don't want to do this. He says, take this cup from me. I don't want to experience this. He has a breakdown, a moment of fear and doubt. But in this moment, we see God the Father meeting Jesus in his moment of need. And it's a picture of what God does for us. He meets us in our moment of need. In the hours that followed this moment of weakness and fear and pain and suffering, after God meets Jesus in this moment, that God becomes God-forsaken for us in order to redeem and conquer our forsakenness by his love. 
And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have this place where we can go and kneel beside Jesus. When we have a crisis of faith, a crisis of life, the struggles of life, the struggles become too real, struggles of pain and suffering, of fear, of regret, of doubt, we can go and kneel beside Jesus and recognize that I was not here first. Jesus was kneeling here before me. And even though here I am again, I have this experience that I don't know what to do with. The world is really screwed up. I am really screwed up. And we kneel beside Jesus in Gethsemane. We realize the same thing that Jesus did, that God is right there holding your hand. When my mind is like a Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com, and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneairdrie. Follow us on Twitter at csairdrie. And on Instagram at cornerstoneairdrie. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus, then click on the About Us on the main menu, and then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together as family we go. you all